In previous lessons, we have gone through looking at various prophecies of the church as it is necessary to do so. As we have gone, we looked at two various and actually two more specific prophecies concerning the church. We went to Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 concerning Isaiah's prophecy of the church and how there in verse 2 it's going to be superior, uh, superior to national governments and all nations will flow into it. There in Isaiah 2 and verse 3 it will evangelize others to come up to this mountain. They shall go out and say, Come ye up to the mountain of the Lord. And in verses 3 and 4 it will begin in Jerusalem and it will spread peace and no more war. So we read there, and that's been several months, then last Sunday evening we had the blessing to assemble yet again. And we had our lesson out of Daniel chapter 2 verses 1 through 45 concerning a prophecy of the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that great statue there. And it has different parts, the head of gold, the, 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 the chest and arms of silver, the torso of bronze or brass, the legs of iron and the feet of iron and potter's clay. And there you have earmarked different world uh, powers that will come. And there in verse 44, Daniel says, In the days of these kings of the iron and clay, God will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And we pair that up. We go and we look at what Jesus said in the book of Mark. Look with me there. Let's get a little reminder going before we get in this morning. Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. Of course, Daniel said in verse uh, 44 of chapter 2 that God shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. We come here to Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So we have Jesus saying right now is the perfect time which of course lines up with Paul's statement in Galatians 4 and verse 4 that in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. It was the perfect time. And when we go in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1, there we read that Jesus says unto His disciples that there will be some present with Him at that very moment that will not die until they see the kingdom come with power. And we of course know in Matthew 16, 16 through 19, Jesus there He uses the terms kingdom of heaven and church interchangeably telling us that this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God is also called the church. And we read of its fulfillment there in Acts chapter number 2 on the day of Pentecost, thus being the first church, which remember shall never be destroyed. It will always stand and we can find it today. That's the point. We can find this great kingdom of God, this church, in its full glory today if we but look to the scriptures and find defining characteristics of it. Friends and brethren, this morning we're going to go through a study looking at defining characteristics of the church of the New Testament. And we're going to try to find this church today because as our dear brother Jackson read in Ephesians 5 and verse 23 that Jesus is the Savior of the body, the church. That is where salvation is found. And if we want salvation today, friends and brethren, we must be in that body. Now as we go and we think about characteristics of the one true church, we have to make it very clear that if something is lost and we can find characteristics and we can compare those to that which is given, it has to meet how many of those characteristics to be the one. 
Let's say your car has been stolen. I drive a, a nice 2001 Ford F-150 with over 100,000 miles on it. It's a standard, and I don't think anyone's going to steal it because it's a standard. But anyway, that's besides the point. It gets stolen. I call the cops. I say, okay, here's the VIN number. Here is the color. Here's the plate I had on it. Here are maybe some things I had inside of it. Oh, by the way, it's a standard. It's a five-speed, so on and so forth. And I give defining characteristics that set it apart from every other vehicle out there. The cops call me the next day. All right, we found a 2001 Ford F-150, but it's green. Is this your car? What do you think I'd say? Absolutely. Bring it on over. That's my. I found a 2023 Dodge Ram 2500 that has all the bells and whistles. Is that your truck? Absolutely. Bring it on. Of course I wouldn't say that. Because it doesn't bear the characteristics of my truck. Therefore, it is not mine. Friends and brethren, as we go throughout this study here this morning, we're going to look in the New Testament at the characteristics this church has. And if we're going to find it today, this church has to bear every single characteristic. Not one thing can be off. Let's get into it. The first defining characteristic we read of this church, of this kingdom of God, is the builder. And when we think about this, all things that have been built have a builder. It's called the law of causation. The law of causation states if there is a car, there is a designer of that car. If there is a pulpit here, there is someone that made this pulpit. There is a cause for its being. And we have to make this statement very clear because there are sadly so many people of the world that they'll say, oh yeah, if there's a car, there has to be a car builder or designer. If there's a laptop, there has to be one that built or designed it. And yet they turn around and they look at the world in which we live and they say there is no God. We have to make it very clear. Everything that is built and exists has a builder. Take a little look with me at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 4. Because so many, maybe not in word, but in practice, they deny this law of causation. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. There we have the Hebrews writer stating very, very clearly that he that built all things, the world, everything that we see around us is God. There is a builder for everything that we see. And friends and brethren, the church has a builder. We go to Matthew chapter 16. I alluded to it earlier as we went and we looked at the different names used interchangeably. Now let's look there in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to look at the very words of Jesus as He is speaking to His disciples. We see there, we start in verse 13, and they come together in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks them the question, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they give Him the different answers that men have said. Look there in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, or more accurately, the Immerser. Some say Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then Jesus changes it, but whom do ye say that I am, or whom say ye that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I'm going to build it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we look here and Jesus very clearly says, Who is going to build this church? I will build my church. He makes it very clear. There can be no misunderstanding. I'm going to build my church. And as we go forward to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 47, where we read of the church being fulfilled, its establishment, its first proclamation, that we read that the saved are added to this church which Jesus has built. We read there praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The saved are added to this church that has been built by God. Friends and brethren, if we're going to find this church of today, which is not a denomination, this church has to have been built by God. And if you are a member of a church that's built as a man, friends and brethren, that's not a church that can save. And that may be harsh to say. That may hurt some feelings. But friends and brethren, that's the truth. We look in Ephesians 5.23, remember? He is the Savior of the body. And that body is the one church. Ephesians 4.4 4 and 1.22 and 23. If the church has been built by someone besides Christ, it is not the right church. And then some will come and say, well, isn't the church of Christ, wasn't it built by the Campbells? Anyone ever heard that the church, uh, church of Christ is also called the church of the Campbellites? That's probably something you may have heard before, alluding to Alexander Campbell and his work in the Restoration Movement. How do you resolve that? Number one, this claim is unsupported by anything. If we go back and we look at the various workings of the Campbells, number one, their first plea was to leave denominationalism and was to unite all under the Scriptures that they preached was the basis of unity. And friends and brethren, when we look to Luke chapter 8 and verse 11. Look with me there. Look. Luke 8, 11. I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, make friends with your neighbor. We don't buy. I promise. Luke 8 and verse 11. Here we have the parable of the sower. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 11, here we read of its interpretation. And the first thing we read of there in verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. The, those by the wayside are they that hear, and then cometh the devil, and taketh away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which when they hear receive the Word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among the thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. We read here in this parable that the word of God is a seed. And every time that seed is planted, it can only produce one thing. If you were to go and plant an apple seed, will you produce strawberries? If you were to go and plant a peach seed, a peach pit, will you grow a tree of thorns? Is that what's going to happen? I hope you say no, because that's, that's not going to happen. If you plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple. If you plant the Word of God, you're going to get a Christian, and it's going to place them in the church. Acts chapter 2 is the very example of that. To preach the gospel is to preach this church whose builder is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here we read, and those that say that the Campbells built the church, no, they taught the very word that added those that were saved to the church. They were bringing back and restoring the church of the New Testament. Number two, the name. We have to go very quickly because I have uh, six here, and I have a lot for all six of them. We've got to go pretty quickly. Number two, the name. Contrary to popular belief, many claim names don't matter. Names don't mean a thing. The names have no meaning whatsoever. As a matter of fact, you, you know, uh, you probably received your name because your parents thought it sounded good or this, that, or the other. Friends and brethren, that's not the way it is in the Bible. Names mean something. And when we go and we look at this throughout the entirety of the Bible, consider Esau in Genesis 25 and verse 25. He's named Esau because he's what? Because he's hairy. You look in Genesis 25 and verse 26, Jacob, he came out grabbing his brother's heel, his twin brother Esau. And what does Jacob mean? Heel grabber or, in other places, supplanter. There you have names mean something, such as Jesus or Daniel or Joshua, which is the same as Jesus, or other names, they mean something. And it shows characteristics of that which is named. So when we look here at the various names of the church in the New Testament, consider these various names. You have, and I'm going to go through these quickly because if we went and looked at all these passages, we'd be here till probably this evening's worship. You have Church of God in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. You have Church of the Living God in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. In that same passage, you have it called the House of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. You have it called in Acts 9 and verse 2. Some translations say the way. The King James says this way. There, of course, Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, he is going and persecuting those that were of this way, or the way, talking about the church. But we're going to go, for sake of time and brevity, Romans chapter 16 and verse number 16. There, as Paul is closing out this letter to the brethren in Rome, he writes, Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Here we have the name Churches of Christ. We have various names in the Bible for this one true church that it can be called. And they are important because notice what it denotes. You have church or churches of Christ. Who do they belong to? They belong to Christ. They are the churches of Christ. You have church of God. Church of the living God. The house of God. The way. Of course, thinking of John 14 and verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have these various different names that portray different characteristics of the church. Now, of course, we know today we see these names in other places. Of course, there is a denomination that goes by the name the Church of God. Uh, they have some that are called the Churches of God in Christ and other various things. So then that begs the question, is it possible for a denomination to bear a scriptural name? In which the answer is, absolutely they can. But remember, we go back to the introduction. Just because they bear the right name, what else do they have to bear? They have to bear everything else to be the church of our Lord. And they do not. Names mean something. There are certain elements of truth that denominations may have. But just because they have a portion doesn't mean it's the true church.
Friends and brethren, it's vital that this church bears a scriptural name. There are several denominations out there that bear the names of men. Several denominations. And it's not me picking on them, I promise. I hope nobody leaves from here getting upset because I'm picking on denominations. Friends and brethren, we all need to look to the Scriptures and go back to the Scriptures. And what some will say, well, you're causing division. Friends and brethren, the division's there. We're just pointing it out. We've got to get back to the Scriptures and the church must bear a scriptural name. And here we see the churches of Christ. Number three, it's foundation. Foundations are necessary for any structure. If you have a house that does not have a foundation, I would be concerned about that house. One day my brother and I, we were probably, he's about, he's a year and a half younger than I am. We, uh, we, we had decided, Dad had cut down a tree and we had all these limbs, we're going to go and make a log cabin. So we go out there, we get spray paint from my dad's shed behind his back without him knowing. We spray paint out the little outline of it. And we go and just jam, jam sticks in the mud. You know what happened the next day? They all fell over. They had no foundation. Foundations are necessary. A foundation is a substance. Something that bears up. And it can bear both the live load and the dead load of that which is in the structure. So the dead load would be the structure itself. So you have this foundation which is bearing the, the very structure of this building that we are sitting in. But it also has to bear our own load in which we are walking around. It has to be strong enough to bear such a load. Consider with me the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, turn with me there. Here we read how important a foundation is. How important any foundation is. Now, we talked about the physical structures, but the same is true with any, uh, with any organization, with any business, with anything. It has to have a solid foundation. And so when we look here in Matthew chapter 7, we start in verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, verse 26, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Here he's talking about what you believe and practice. That which you believe and practice. And here the context is religiously even. So, if you hear these things of mine and you believe them, you're on a solid foundation. Shows how important they are. As we continue and we think about the foundation of the church, look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. <coughs> Excuse me. When we look here in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 11, here we have, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Who or what is the foundation of the church? Or more properly, who? That would be Jesus. Jesus is the very foundation of the church. He is that which bears up the load of the church. He is that which allows the church to exist, to continue on, even into eternity. Jesus is the foundation. Look with me in Matthew 16 again. I know we looked there already. 
but we consider 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, and that Jesus is the foundation, notice how this lines up with what Peter said in his confession. Matthew 16 and verse number 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you have, you continue on down in verse 18, that Jesus says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There is a foundation to his church, and many will contend it's Peter. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's not Peter. Peter is not that rock. You go back up to what Peter said. It's the confession, or more accurately, the truth of the confession. Verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You think about that foundation that Jesus is the Messiah, prophesied of even in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You think about that prophecy. You think about all the prophecies Jesus fulfilled, which in the New Testament are quoted about 300-something prophecies of Christ. And He fulfilled all of them. And He has stood up to scrutiny from the first century even till now without anybody being able to disprove Him. That's a pretty solid foundation. What do you think? Jesus is our foundation. It is true, there can be faulty foundations. There are many that claim, well, Peter is the foundation of certain denominations. We go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. It is possible to have a faulty foundation. Galatians 2, 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. There we read that Peter was movable. How many of you, when you enter a building, want to feel the foundation moving back and forth? Would you buy that house? Funny story, actually. I didn't think about this until now. My wife and I were moving to Newton, Kansas. And we went and we looked at this house. And you walked in the house. It was built, I believe, in the late 1890s. I may be wrong. My wife can correct me later. 1890. You walked in the house. And it had a bunch of add-ons added on throughout the years. And you go into the size of the house, and you could tell the foundation was sinking in. And so you go into a room on each end of the house, and you walk in, and they had built on part of this room, and you go in the closet, and you feel like you're leaning forward. You feel like you're, you're about to fall on your face because the foundation was failing. Those that build the foundations on men are like that. They're going to fail. They're not going to stand into eternity. They're not going to go beyond this world. They can't stand against the very judgment of God. Whereas we have Jesus is God, and it must be built on Him. If a man serves as the foundation of anything, it is not perfect and cannot stand forever. Since Jesus is the foundation of the church, it will stand into eternity. Number four, we can identify the church by its worship. Worship has been commanded of God from the very beginning. We think of such places as Genesis chapter number 4. Look with me there. Genesis chapter number 4. When we go there, we read it in verse 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his mother Abel, his brother Abel rather. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. We look here in Genesis 4. Remember chapter 3. We have the account of man falling in the garden. Man has chosen to sin. Therefore, they are no longer in that relationship with God. Now we read in chapter 4, in the process of time, some time, we don't know when, we don't know how much time has gone by, but we read that God has a law for them, and part of that law, Genesis 4, is to worship Him, and they have to worship in a specific way. If they didn't have to worship in a specific way, then God is a respecter of persons. Because He respected Abel's, but not Cain's. There is a law in the very beginning concerning worship. We go to Job chapter 1 and verse number 5. There we read that Job was offering worship for his sons. Most likely under the patriarchal law. We have, from the very beginning, God has commanded Worship, And it's the same today. Look with me to John 4.24. Of course, again, several, uh, a few months ago, we uh, went through a study on looking at continuing in worship to God. And this was the keynote of that entire study. John chapter 4 and verse number 24. As we go there, we have this truth. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is a spirit, He's not physical, and they that worship Him. The very theme, the, the very subject of the verse are true worshipers. These true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit with the right attitude and in truth with the right pattern. So they have the right attitude <coughs> excuse me, and the right pattern. So they look to God's commands. Lord, how can we serve you? How can we worship you? And that's how they do it. And we read of this very pattern in Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number (coughs) 2. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Here we have, when the church is established, the church is now worshiping God. And we read, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's preaching. We read, and in fellowship. That's in singing. They're singing with one another. They're even giving. They're in common. Then you have in breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. They're praying with one another. You have them worshiping God as God has commanded them, thus giving us a divine example, therefore authorizing how we must worship. And unauthorizing how we cannot worship. The church has a pattern of worship. We of course have to know there are consequences of worshiping God in an unauthorized manner. One of the most prolific, profound, and the one that stands out the most is found in Leviticus chapter number 10. As we go there, we're not going to go and read, because I have a whole sermon on that. We'd be here, I guarantee you, until midnight, if I added that into this. But there, in verse 1 of chapter 10, they go and they offer strange fire before the Lord. They offer fire that God had not authorized, and God did not recognize. 
<clears throat> and because of such, what happened to them? Verse 2, fire came down from heaven and ate them up because of unauthorized worship. And yet we hear even our own brethren say, what's wrong with that? Why can't we do that? One elder in the church I know, every time somebody asked him, what's wrong with that? He'd ask back, what's right with it? Brethren, rather than asking ourselves what's wrong with it, we need to start asking what's right with it with everything. What's right with it? We must follow the divine examples of worship in the New Testament. Acts 2.42, Acts 20 and verse 7. The various commands that we read. We had one this morning quoted before we took the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 9. As we see, Jesus did in Matthew 26. Giving commands as to the Lord's Supper. You have Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19 concerning singing. You have in 2 Timothy 4 and verse number 2. Preach the word, O Timothy, you young preacher. Preach it. That's what we're to preach, Hank and I. If, it, if either of us preach anything else, and I'm going to put myself, I know Hank will preach the Word. But if I preach anything other than the Word, get up here while I'm preaching and kick me out. There's nothing else worth preaching. We have various commands and divine examples of worship. The church must worship as the first century church did. Number five, it's authority. Authority is the right to exercise power. If we had time, which we don't, you can go to Romans 13 and their study through the power and authority that God has given the local governments. God has given governments the authority to exercise power. Now, their power must coincide with God, and if they don't, well, of course there's going to be punishment. But we have because of that, there in Romans 13, Paul tells us to submit unto the governing authorities. We must submit because God has given them authority to exercise power. We go to Matthew chapter number 28 and verse 18. Let's look at the first words that Jesus says before He gives the great commission unto the disciples. There in verse 18, Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. That word power is also translated in other translations as authority. All authority. All power. He has the right to exercise power and authority. And He has His power, notice, over heaven and earth. He can exercise power. So when we go and we look at the authority that the church has and exercises, whose authority must it line with? And this should probably be point number one now that I'm thinking about it. Colossians 3 and verse 17. Look with me there. Colossians 3 and verse 17. As we turn there, we read, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, whatever ye say, whatever ye practice, notice, do all. My favorite phrase. What is it? You can't get any aller than all. All is everything. Do everything that you practice by the authority of God. Friends and brethren, you ever been asked why you don't cuss? Why you don't go to parties? Why you don't go to these different things? My number one answer to all of them is I don't have the authority. You know what? I have been bought so I have to live as I ought. I have to live in a way in which my master dictates. Therefore, I have no authority. The church 
and its authority must come and coincide with Christ's. Look with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Here, here we, we know Paul. He is with the elders of the church at Ephesus. The Lord's church in Ephesus. And, and there he really encourages them and warns them concerning different things. And notice there, as we look in verse... We, I mean, we can go all the way back up to verse 17, but for time's sake, verse 28. Take ye therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. To feed, or another word can be shepherd. You need to rule your church. Is that what he says? Look at the text. Is that what Paul says? You need to rule your church. He says, no, you need a shepherd. You need to feed the church of God. Since it's God's church, you have to feed it, you have to lead it in a way in which God dictates. Therefore, do everything by God's authority. Now notice, here's a good point to make. Which member or personage of the Godhead does Paul directly reference? Who hath purchased it with his own blood? Christ. So here we have another passage where we can look at. He's talking about the church of Christ. So we have, you are to practice everything by the authority that God has given unto you. Yet so many make their own authorities, their own creeds, their own confessions, their own catechisms. There is no authority for those in scriptures. We must do what the Bible says in the Bible only. Number six, we can identify the church by its characteristic, by its plan of salvation. Its plan of salvation since the church functions by the authority of Christ, let's notice what Jesus says concerning salvation. Look with me to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. There you have from the words of Christ Himself, the very mouth of Christ, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, he didn't say he that believeth not and is baptized not. Friends and brethren, if you don't believe, you're not going to be baptized. What's the point of saying he that believeth not is baptized not? It's a redundancy. If you don't believe, you're not going to obey. But you can tell someone believes by their obedience. Baptism. He that believeth and is baptized will be saved. Consider other passages concerning hearing, Matthew 7 and verse 24 and following, believing, John 3 and verse 16, repenting of sin, Luke 13 and verse 3, confessing Jesus as the Christ, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, being baptized, John 3, 3 through 5. I know I went through those quick. Come see me afterwards if you want those references. All of those from the very mouth of Christ concerning salvation. This church must practice and teach Biblical plan of salvation. Friends and brethren, there's no other plan of salvation. In the United States alone, there are over 36,000 denominations. 36,000. There's so many denominations, and guess what? There's so many different ways to be saved. Friends and brethren, there's no multiple way to get to heaven. There's only one way. John 14 and verse 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Those are the words of Christ. Only one way, through Christ, and being in Christ. Galatians 3.27, that's being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you're added to the church. Acts 2 and verse 47. There is no other plan of salvation. We must follow the Bible's plan of salvation. Number six, 
the one you've all been awaiting for. This is the last one. We can identify the church of the New Testament by its plan for Christian living. Sadly, there are many in the world that will teach, well, you can be saved and you can go live how you want. You can do what you please because you're under grace, because you're saved. Yet consider with me Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what Paul writes. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Next two words of verse 2. God forbid, or certainly not. Can I continue in sin? Can I continue living a life that is full of sin because I'm now saved and God's grace covers me? Can I do that? Paul says, God forbid, certainly not. You cannot live that way. Yet we have so many in the world that would like to teach that to us. Friends and brethren, that's false. We can't live how we want to live. There in verse 2, he asks the question to combat that. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, we died to sin. How, how, can I, how can I go and live a life full of sin? I saw yesterday someone had posted on Facebook, make sure you don't bury a living body. They're talking about baptism. Don't go in the water to be saved and then come up and live the same life. You've just buried a living body. The old man's to be dead. Our plan for, or rather the church's plan for Christian living is outlined in Titus chapter 2. Grab your Bibles, let us look there. We're coming to a close. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Number 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We have salvation given to us by the very grace of God. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. All men have an ability to be saved. It's not given to all men, because not all men obey, but all men have an opportunity. Verse 12, notice, grace isn't just some mystical thing as the world likes to portray it. Grace is an instructor. It teaches us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. I shun the things of the world. I, I shun things that God does not smile about. I, I shun even the very fellowship of those things. I shun ungodliness. I don't want that in my home. I, I shun worldly lust. I don't want that in my life. First John 2 and verse 16. There you have, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh. That which makes me feel good. Lust of the eyes. That which looks good to me. And pride of life. That which makes me look good. I, I shun all that. I don't want to live that way. Teaching us and denying those things. That we should live soberly. We have a sound mind. We live in a sound way. Righteously. Psalm 119, 172. There the psalmist writes, Thy commandments are righteousness. I tried to quote it, but I forgot it in the heat of the moment. Go there. Uh, not right now, but in your own time. Make sure I preach that right. Psalm 119, 172. God's commandments are righteousness. If we're going to live righteously, we're going to live according to the commands of God. That I should live soberly, righteously, and godly in a pious way. In a way of continued dedication unto our God. Friends and brethren, no other way can save. Calvinism teaches us I can live power I want. Actually, Calvinism teaches I have no control over my own salvation. That's false. Others teach, well, we can have a second chance. That's false. Hebrews 9.27 After death, we face the judgment. 
For it is appointed a man to die once, and after this the judgment. Friends and brethren, <clears throat> these, th these six characteristics, the builder, the name, the foundation, it's, it's worship, it's authority, it's plan of salvation, and it's plan for Christian living. This is not an all-extensive list. There are certainly other characteristics we can go and look at. But here's my encouragement. That you look at these very characteristics that have been pulled out of the text, that have been pulled out of the Bible, the New Testament. You look at them, and you compare them to the churches of today. And don't be afraid to compare them to the Church of Christ, because guess what? If someone's doing right, they have no need to be afraid of the light. You compare all the religious bodies of today to the Scriptures. And the one that matches all the characteristics is the church to be in. That's the church that can save. And that's the church you must be in. There is no other place for salvation. Perhaps there is somebody here this morning that realizes upon the studying of this text, of these words, that you are not saved. Friends and brethren, we encourage you to please make that right. We never know when death will come knocking at our door. We never know when our Lord will return. Please make yourself right. If you're not a member of that church, we just went through the plan of salvation not that long ago. But let's remember here, Romans 10, 17. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, John 3, 36. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus as the Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 22 and verse 16. Rising up, being added to the church, and walking together in unity, laboring for the kingdom and faithful service, Hebrews 10, 35. Maybe there's somebody here this morning, you've realized that you were faithful in the church and then you left. We beg of you to come home. There's no other home to be. This is the home to be. God has a second law of pardon as outlined in Acts chapter number 8. Repent. We have in James 5.16. Confess and pray. If you have any need, we implore of you, please make it right. Come forward as we stand together and praise God together in song.